Brought to you by Impact Alpha. Live on tape from Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about how capital is deployed in pursuit of social and environmental impact alongside financial returns. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Walsh, head of Impact at the financial technology firm LiquidNet. With me in New York is Imogen Rose Smith, a senior writer with Institutional Investor Magazine. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And joining us from San Francisco is David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha. Hi, David. Hi, Brian. So today we're going to talk about the Paris Climate Agreement. As you probably know by now, 195 countries agreed to voluntary commitments to address climate change. David, what does this mean for investors? Well, Brian, I don't know. Maybe I'm a raging bull or I'm in the reality distortion field of, of some good news finally. But uh, I think this is the, the signal that it's it's on. There was a Goldman Sachs report just recently, I think just before the conference, that said uh, this is a $600 billion a year revenue opportunity for low carbon investments. And they called out four sectors, uh, solar voltaics, onshore wind, hybrid and electric vehicles, and LED lighting. And together, they say that that's five gigatons of carbon saved from the growth trajectory already in motion on those things. Those things are capturing increasing you know, amounts of market share in their respective markets. So as the investment opportunity becomes clear and the money pours in and there's what you know, uh, folks will refer to as increasing returns to scale, I think we're going to see... Uh, that we blow through the targets they set in Paris and that, in fact, we look back and we say, wow, this was the... So Imogen, there was a lot of news at this conference, a lot of news from the investment community, and and even uh, folks like Bill Gates came out with some big headlines himself. Uh, He launched what he calls the Breakthrough Energy Coalition. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, But you shouldn't be surprised to see Bill Gates doing this. He is actually already one of the biggest investors in green tech. So Bill Gates wasn't the surprise, but who was joining Bill Gates in this announcement was really interesting. So the Breakthrough Energy Coalition is a coalition of 17 investors, 16 billionaires, and one institutional investor, the University of California. And they have come together to pledge a minimum of $2 billion over the next five years to invest in clean energy and clean energy technologies. So among them, you have Bill Gates, you have John Arnold, famous from Enron. He's a natural gas trader. Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, a bunch of hedge fund managers, Ray Dalio, Julian Robinson, Chris Hone, some of whom you'd expect. Chris Hone has done a lot in climate, is very interested in this issue. Julian Robinson was a surprise to me. Ratan Tata, uh, Jack Ma of Alibaba Group, all of these people have come together. And what they're really focusing on, on is new technologies and new breakthroughs. And that's there's a schism there between sort of what the Goldman Sachs report was talking about, which was very much talking about renewables, what's already in the market. Um, And you see sort of there are a number of investors who have been very active in that space. Bill Gates has been more focused on coming up with new ideas. 
And this idea that you need, we need a Manhattan Project, that, that what, what's out there right now isn't getting it done. So despite all David's enthusiasm, you know, Bill Gates would have, not to speak for him, more of a sort of a glasses half empty approach and say, we need to find, you know, the stuff's there, we can do it, we've got the money, we're going to go out, we're going to do R&D. And that's, you know, that, that's an important reason why the University of California is in the conversation, because they're like, we have all these experts, we, we, can, we can fix this, guys but we're not there yet. There was an interesting interchange just on that point, Imogen, about between Jigger Shah, um, who's even more of a raging bull on this than me, telling Bill Gates, you know, we already have the technology, we just need to scale it up, we need to invest in the projects to, to deploy these 40-year-old things like solar photovoltaics, not always rely on the miracle. But I really think it's a, a staging thing. I think we have the technology for the first phase and that we need the research so that we can get to the the rest of the way there post, you know, 2020 to post 2025. And, and David, where did Jiggershaw write his kind of pushback to Bill Gates? Well, we published it in Impact Alpha. It's funny you should mention that because um, we think that there is an interesting argument. I think the Bill Gates investment and the, and the Breakthrough Energy Coalition is super important to signal, particularly the developing countries, that there will be investment dollars to roll out, you know, new technologies, but it's really not the project finance that we're talking about, which is really, you know, $2 billion doesn't really get there. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of investment needed. People talk about a trillion dollars a year just to get to the goals that were articulated in Paris. And Barclays put out a report that said, you know, get ready for the a billion dollars over 15 years is 15 trillion. Barclays said, get ready for the $45 trillion investment scenario, which would really transform the energy sector at the least um, and have some really interesting implications for, you know, sort of big portfolio holders. But David, oil and gas and coal still generate two thirds of electricity today. They still power over 75% of industry and they still fuel over 95% of global transport. So how can all these investments really kind of take over that stranglehold that that these uh, carbon emitting uh, energy sources still have on our economy? Well, stranglehold and stranglehold, you know, what, what we're talking about is where is the new generating capacity coming from? You know, yes, there are existing power plants that will operate until they're non-economic and then they'll be shut down. And that will, they'll become non-economic in a number of different ways, including, you know, a price on carbon and, and other things. But what we're really talking about is what are the new sources of energy that come online to fuel the growth? I mean, just take one kind of obvious example, there is 1.6 billion people in the world who never got electricity from the old system, and they're going to get electricity from a much more distributed, clean, green way. So there are huge, you know, leave aside the climate carbon implications, just think about where the demand for energy is going to come from and where how it's going to be met. And you think about the investment opportunities for the future. I don't think if you were looking out 20 or 30 years, you're going to say, wow, I really want to double down on my coal investment. Right. But it's kind of exciting to think about that that future generation that will be the the uh, the middle class economy that's completely carbon free. Well, yeah, exactly. And so there's a lot of details in here. What happened to the carbon markets the day after Paris? I, you know, not much. It's going to take you know, at least a year and possibly several years for, you know, all of these kind of implications to cycle through. But I think, you know, so we might say, you know, in a year that it looked like not much was happening. I think when we look back five or 10 years, we'll say, wow, a lot. But happened. I think it's important to focus on the big picture here. I think the details are important and the details are going to be important going forward. But one thing that really struck me was the 
obvious difference in feeling from Copenhagen, right? If you spoke to people there who were there, who were at Copenhagen, who were at Paris, it was very clear that like this felt different. No one really doubted going into this that there was going to be some kind of outcome. And what's really important here is you have governments agreeing that something has to happen, China agreeing that something has to happen. China was a real roadblock last time. And you have the business community and the investment community and industry leaders like Bill Gates all coming to the table saying this. That's a huge shift in the last five years. I, I agree. And I think that what it really signals is that there's a whole set of actors who are just waiting to get activated here. And what you'll really see is you'll see a split in the corporate world, in the in the finance world. And, you know, folks will sort of pick their side or, you know, sort of pick which scenario they expect to play out and make their bets. And it really is, I mean, it's partly ideological. You could say the blinders on it might partly be ideological. But in fact, people just, you know, even if you took just a hard-nosed portfolio return sort of perspective on it, you'd say, Hmm, where are my risks? Where are my opportunities? What's my 20, you know, year horizon for my allocation? And once that thinking starts, you know, the logic is pretty inexorable. And so I think that the, as that logic cycles through the market, that the shift will happen pretty quickly. Right. I think that as an investor, if you're an investor, whether you believe in climate change and climate science or not, uh, I think it's pretty clear that the regulatory framework is changing. And so therefore, uh, the implications are clear and that there will be a price on carbon and there will be implications for these assets. And that gets us to this, this concept of stranded assets, of course, is, you know, in order for us not to have the irrevocable damage from climate uh, change that scientists predict, we need to keep some of the carbon that's currently in the ground and we need to have it remain in the ground. So Imogen, can you walk us through this concept of stranded assets? Sure. So um, I'm a big fan of the stranded assets concept. I think it makes a lot of sense for investors. So this is an idea that was developed by the Carbon Tracker Initiative in the UK and some other people, including a bunch of quants who like this because it involves numbers. Um, and it was then popularized by and the environmental activists, including particularly Bill McKibben. And what it is, is this, it's this idea that the business model of, in particular, the big energy companies is fundamentally broken because they already have a bunch of carbon on that deposits on their books, just in the same way that the investment banks had a bunch of mortgages on their books going into the 2008 crisis. And the R&D model is to go out and find more deposits. But they already have more carbon on their books than can be safely burned in order for the atmosphere to stay below the 2% carbon threshold. So already, effectively, they can't use all the resources they have. So that puts pressure on them to not keep doing this and to not go and get more deposits. Similarly, if and when we have put a price on carbon, those assets are going to be valueless overnight, just in the same way when people started marking subprime mortgages to market in 2008, suddenly they were more or less valueless and you know, the banks started collapsing. The analogy I use for stranded assets is you have the Super Bowl. So last year, the Super Bowl was between the New England Patriots and the Seattle Seahawks, and obviously the Patriots won, but they had pre-printed 
uh, t-shirts and hats and everything else paraphernalia saying Seattle Seahawks the Super Bowl champions and those of course were immediately useless those are at least collector's items if, especially if you're a Seahawks fan I bet a barrel of oil will become a collector's item in the year 2100 well the stranded assets argument is indeed fascinating it's sort of a subset of the of the of this climate policy risk people think about climate risk and rising sea levels and whatnot but what the portfolio guys think about is climate policy risk. What's going to happen to your portfolio if uh, aggressive policy regime gets implemented? And that's what Imogen was saying. If, if there's a price on carbon or there's other regulations, then the oil in the ground will be worth less than it is now because you won't be able to burn it. And there's a bunch of interesting implications of that. One of which is, and, and BlackRock warned of this a couple of weeks back as well, you know, even if you uh, even if you're not a raging environmentalist, if you think everybody else is going to be getting out of, uh, of those oil stocks, um, you know, maybe you don't want to be holding on to them for that much longer. So a little bit becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy once, the, once it gets rolling. Yeah, there are some in the divestment movement around this, they make that case explicitly that it is actually in keeping with fiduciary responsibility and fiduciary duty to divest from these uh, these assets because it doesn't have to do with your own, it doesn't have to only have to do rather with your own personal value system. But if you believe that the investment climate, the regulatory framework is going to be such that carbon-based energy is going to be so expensive and there's going to be this uh, direct economic cost, then it makes sense to divest from it. So the New York State Common Retirement Fund announced that they are investing $2 million in, $2 million, $2 billion in an indices that Goldman Sachs has helped them develop, which is going to track the carbon exposure in the Russell 2000 holdings. And as and where they feel like that carbon exposure is getting too great, they will sort of tilt away from that. And it's this recognition that there is embedded carbon risk in your investing. So obviously, you know, you're going to have a slight tilt away from the big energy companies, likely as well, transportation and things like that, where there is a big carbon exposure. One of the things that's interesting, of course, is that like if they really believe this, surely they would put all of their index, they would apply this to all of their indexed assets. I was going to ask about that. If they've got $184 billion and they pledge $2 billion, I think it brings their so-called sustainable investments up to $5 billion. So five out of 183, what's going on with the rest of it? Yeah, and this is this is something that I feel for the institutional investor community, and it's also a little bit frustrating. Like from their perspective, you know, from a fiduciary duty standpoint, they want to go slowly, right? They want to make sure that this works and that they're being conscientious in what they're doing. You don't just want to like go all in. The problem is, is it's a bit binary, right? Like either you believe this or you don't. So it's much easier for like a Bill Gates to like commit then for like a large he's investing from his own yeah. per, private resources it's different for an institutional investor who has a fiduciary responsibility yeah. to end beneficiaries and you know so i and again i i get a little frustrated with the activists here because it, it, yeah it's fine to say you know as a fiduciary duty you have a responsibility to consider carbon risk you know, and a lot of institutional investors would agree with you but does that necessarily mean that you should be divesting all your coal assets that is a much harder question 
to answer. And suddenly when you expand it to like oil, it's really tricky. And so you're right, no one wants to be the last one out of coal, but there's also, you know, you don't want to be the first one out, right? And there's potentially still a lot of value and a lot of opportunity to be gotten there in different parts of the capital structure. So, so as fiduciaries, there's a lot more to think about than, than just this, this one question of climate change or climate policy. Although, David, I think that, I gotta say, I think the sort of climate cut policy stuff, it's a lot of US investors tying themselves in knots because they don't want to flat out say they think climate change is real. Oh, that's interesting. Well, there. I mean, I just think it'll be fascinating when we look back and see who played, who who played the the, the carbon transition well and who played it badly, and you know who was too aggressive and who was too cautious, and um, you know people will 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 make or make or break their reputations on these kind of things. It would, it's usually best to say it's not their job to market time, right? I would argue that they do market time, they market time badly, but that's precisely the point. It's the point of like the venture capitalists, the pioneers, entrepreneurs to play climate change. The goal of institutional investors is to be like much more conservative, much, much slower in what they do. But I think what's important here is, is you are seeing the different parts of the capital market ecosystem line up. So now we're going to introduce a new segment we call Bullet Points. Imogen, what is your bullet point of the week? So the Wall Street Journal's coverage of the Paris Climate Talks was spectacularly entertaining in its grudgingness and its reluctance to even address that there were talks going on. And they had a fantastic op-ed on Monday, which includes the lines, <laughs> forgive us for looking through the lacy smoke. But if climate change really does imperil the Earth, and we doubt it does, nothing coming out of gaggle of governments in the United Nations will save it. And just, it, it's no surprise that Wall Street struggles to get its hands around climate risk when the sort of paper record for Wall Street is so reluctant to recognize the problem. That's fascinating. They've moved from it's not real to it's too late. So, David, what's your bullet point? Between 2015 and 2020, solar photovoltaics and wind will add more global energy than U.S. shale oil did between 2010 and 2015. So the bullet point is, if you think shale was a big deal in the last five years, get ready for solar and wind in the next five years. Very interesting. And for my bullet point, I'm going to say uh, between 14% and 90%. Those are two numbers I want to point out. So in 2014, the world got 14% of its energy supply from carbon-free sources. By the second half of the 21st century, it has to be greater than 90% uh, in, in from carbon-free resources if we're going to really mitigate the impact of climate change. So the question is, how do we get from this 14% from carbon-free sources of energy to greater than 90%? And I think that it's going to take the collective will of governments, as uh, demonstrated by the Paris Climate Agreement, but also uh, from the investment of savvy investors that see this as uh, not just a challenge, but an incredible opportunity. So that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment from Impact Alpha. 
For more coverage of the Impact Investing Marketplace, please visit us at impactalpha.com and be sure to follow Impact Alpha on Twitter. If you like the show, please be sure to tell others about it. If you didn't like the show, just please keep it to yourself. Special thanks to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. For Imogen Rose Smith of Institutional Investor Magazine and David Bank of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh of Liquidit. Thanking you for listening. Until next time, this has been Returns on Investment.